Revelation chapter 15, I'll read verses 5 through 8 this morning. Revelation chapter 15, verses 5 through 8. We come to the conclusion of what serves as the prelude or the prologue to the third set of um, judgments against Jerusalem and Israel and the temple. Uh, As I read from this small section of God's word this morning, I would invite you Uh, to follow along with me, Revelation chapter 15, uh, beginning in verse 5. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Thus far the reading of God's word, you may be seated Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we gather this morning so that you might, by your Spirit, work in us that which you have begun. That you would work salvation, that you would call the sinner to salvation, and that you would nurture and edify and strengthen the saint in righteousness as we endeavor to live lives of faithfulness before you. Transform us so that we might leave a people forever altered as we encounter you in your sanctuary this morning, knowing even now the way is open to all who come through Christ who is the door. And so we ask that by his power and through his presence, you would speak to us this morning. We pray all this in your mighty name. Amen. This morning, as we come to Revelation 15, in this prelude before the bowls or the chalices of judgment, we find Christ making it very clear that in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection, he was erecting a new temple, a new place, wherein his children, his people, his beloved bride, would meet with the triune Lord forever. Something has changed. But for many, that change was not only unwelcome, it was unrecognized, it was missed. There were many, even in the days of Christ, who were confused. Even his own disciples were confused for a time when he said, tear down this temple and in three days it will be raised again. The reason why the gospel writer gives us the little aside he was talking about himself was because they had not yet figured out how to translate and understand and interpret the old with the New Testament. Christ is the fulfillment, and in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, the destruction of one order and the implementation of a new order, and that order is this. We enter a heavenly temple now through the blood of a sacrifice that speaks louder than all the blood of rams and goats. 
Revelation is a symbolic, pictorial representation of all of the truths that we find even in the book of Hebrews. And the reason why it is important to us today is so that we will not only not go back, it is not only an apology against the poisonous doctrine of dispensationalism, but of works righteousness and every other pagan religion that says that we access God through something here on earth, whether it is another person, but that we, as those who are the priests of Christ, the priesthood of believers, we have immediate access before the throne of God through Christ Jesus himself. And in order to make that point very, very clear, John, time and again, recounts to us just what Christ would have him see and know and convey to the church in every age that there is no entry to the heavens, to the temple that is in heaven, to the temple that is on earth. It is passing away. That is what I want to look at this morning, and I want to do so under these two headings. The first, a negative sacrament. A negative sacrament. And the second, when the way of mercy is closed. When the way of mercy is closed. Let's look at that first point this morning. A negative sacrament. What we find in Revelation chapter 15 is the very thing that you and I do not wish to find when we approach the house of God. The doors are closed. And there is a sign that says, no entry. What we find in Revelation chapter 15 is not the doors of the Holy of Holies, that place where Christ himself dwells with the Father and the Son, that place of mercy poured out from the mercy seat, but rather judgment. Now, in his commentary in the book of Revelation, David Chilton writes, I have called these seven containers, you'll find them in 15, then especially in chapter 16, chalices. Rather than vials, if you have the King James Version, that's the word that it uses, or bowls, the New American Standard and the ESV, to emphasize their character as a negative statement. The wicked are condemned, in chapter 14, verse 10, to drink the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup or chalice of his anger. And when the plagues are poured out, the angel of the waters exults in the appropriateness of God's justice. For they are poured out, or for they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. Chapter 16, verse 6, that will come later. St. John here returns to the image of the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Now you may say, who cares what you call it? And I get that, but we do understand what is happening, what kind of pouring out, and it is a cup or chalice of wrath. It is that very element of God's judgment against rebellion to the Messiah. Now what has meant to be and always was a figure of mercy 
In fact, what began in the garden, in that theme of dwelling in the inner courts with God, earth itself being set up very much like the tabernacle, the temple, and before that, the mountain of God, Sinai, there were varying degrees of intimacy in dwelling with God. God in the beginning dwelt with Adam and his wife in the garden. And they were called to tend to that garden like priests, but they were also called to go beyond the walls of that garden and make it bigger. This is a redemptive historical thing throughout Scripture that what we are doing as priests of the household of faith is to make, in essence, all of the earth filled with the glory of God through the magnification of him by the worship of the saints in every tribe, tongue, and nation. To make the temple bigger. The Bible says time and time again, pull out the stakes and expand the walls of the tent. That is the mission and work of the church. And what we expect when we get to that innermost place where God dwells is peace. That's where you want to go. But the problem for those who are sinners is there is no entry. There is no access. There is one who stands guard at the door. And in Genesis, it was an angel and a fiery sword. And so God would build another kind of house wherein you and I could go through the blood of sacrifices. And so at the very outside of that house, the tabernacle in the temple, was the mechanism by which people were made holy to get closer. But even still, the blood of rams and goats, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, does not suffice to take away any sins. It was merely the means by which God passed over former sins and even laid those sins upon Christ, the perfect sacrifice, who would come in the Gospels. Are you with me? Okay, good. It's a lot of history. (laughs) But when you get there and you knock on the door, we're told to ask, to seek, to knock. No one's home! Go away. Can you imagine worse words to hear? Now, I had a seminary professor who said, begin every sermon with a story. And I struggle to do that because sometimes I just struggle to come up with a story. God gave me one this morning, if I can say it that way. Does that sound OPC? God gave me a story. As I was preparing to preach this morning, I left my study and I was subsequently locked out of my office for 15 minutes. And I began to panic a little bit because my sermon notes, the phone that I used to record, uh, the notes for Sunday school, and basically everything I needed to progress through the morning, even my jacket, was locked behind a door. And I kept thinking, how in the world am I going to get through this door? And so I grabbed Spencer and Andy, and I said, "Um, I'm going to need to take drastic measures to get into this door. Are you okay with that? And Kevin Caldwell showed up with his glass breaker, and I proceeded to chip away the glass in that little security window thing, reached in, and unlocked the door. There was access, (laughs) but it required some work. 
Children, maybe for you an example. Mom and dad are in bed. The door is closed. No one ever knows why the door is closed. And it doesn't matter that the door is closed, but you treat it like it's open all the time. And you come to the door, and without fail, mom and dad, as soon as you close the door and get in the bed, not soon after, it is a law, an irrevocable law of nature, that as soon as that door is closed and you climb in bed, if they knock at all, go away. Kids, you don't want to hear that, do you? No, no one wants to hear that. I want access. The promise, time and time again in the Old Testament, is the renewal of this very glorious promise. The way to sinners is open. Now the Old Old Testament teaches us this. In order for the door to remain open, God must do something that only he can do, and you must come according to the way that he prescribes. There is not a back door. Perhaps when you were younger, and you should not have done this, but maybe you did, you would buy a ticket to the theater, one person, and they would go in and prop the door open to the outside, and all the buddies would come in that exit. That is not the way into the kingdom. Christ knows. In fact, Christ speaks of this, that there are those who endeavor to climb the wall, to go in through another door, but there is but one door. And that door, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, is Christ. And when we get there, what do we see? That is what we see. We see a table prepared for us whereby we sit and we sup with Christ. And it is a sign and seal of our fellowship with him. But if you have not entered through Christ, then the table whereby you seek to gain access is not a table of mercy. It is purely a table of judgment. Because it is a table that signs and seals the wrath of God poured out on sinners through Christ, that all who come through Christ come and are welcome. But all who find themselves there by way of another door do not find mercy poured out, but rather a chalice of judgment and wrath. Now to bring it back to the theme of redemptive history, When Christ came into the world, he came to those who did not receive him. Now, some did, many did not. But on the whole, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, all of those who put their hope in who dwelt within the temple, when he came out of the temple to dwell among them, they did not recognize him or want him, and they rejected him. And so they are being judged because of their rejection of him. And so if I can take you back to that moment in the death of Christ where the curtain of the temple is torn in two, we often think of that moment fondly because we see it as a a moment whereby access is granted to you and to me, especially as Gentiles, to enter into that most holy place through the blood of Christ. 
But it is not just a picture of mercy offered in abundance. It is also a picture of the holiness of God poured out upon the city of Jerusalem because they just killed the Messiah. Two things or two elements of God's glory then came forth out of the Holy of Holies and into the camp. And it wasn't just mercy. It was also wrath. What we find in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ is a new and clearer declaration of the glory of God, His majesty and His holiness at work upon the earth for salvation and for judgment. Both of those things evidence and are part of the character and holiness and glory of God. And so in Revelation chapter 15, from that place, the mercy seat, remember the ark and its design? It was not just a box, it was a throne. And on that throne were copies, symbols of heavenly beings. Not works of human imagination, but copies of real heavenly beings that God commissioned to be put there so that when Israel thought of the ark, because they could not see it but one man once a year, they remembered this is a copy. This is a copy. The house, the seat, the implements, all of these things say something about a heavenly reality. That God would come down and there he would sit upon the mercy seat. And those beings figured on that seat are real in heaven even as God is. And here they are. These things I looked, behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. That's a, an interesting phrase. The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven I would say that this is just a very fancy way of saying the holy of holies. That most holy place where the throne of heaven and earth is, it was opened. And out of that holy place came seven angels with the seven, seven plagues, clothed in bright linen, chests girded with golden bands, clothed in power. And then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls, full of the wrath of God. What is coming forth? It is not an expression of grace and salvation and comfort and, just, and, and, and mercy, but what? A special delivery for all of those who rejected the salvation of the one who sits upon that seat. This is here at this point, the fulfillment of Revelation chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, is in particular the wrath poured out on Jerusalem and the Jewish people for their rejection of Jesus Christ. That is the historical fulfillment of this particular text. But like any of these texts, as we have seen, God is consistent in the way in which he deals with men. If you reject the mercy of the mercy seat, how great then is the wrath? 
Now, I want to bring it home a little bit, lest you think God does not deal to this day with people with wrath. For all of you who grow up, as the Jews did, hearing the covenant promises of God, longing for the Messiah, hearing sermon after sermon after sermon, prophecy after prophecy, only to see the substance of all of that revealed to their very eyes, and then reject him, how great is that judgment? We know something of this, the escalation of judgment due to the relationship and the obstinacy of the offense. If you're a third-time offender, there's no hope for you. Parents, this happens with your children. A mistake is made, and you deal with that mistake, and you say, and rightly so, don't do this again. And then, lo and behold, not much long after that, the same offense is committed. I can assume that, right? Can I assume that? (laughs) Because I've been there and I've done that. And I've offended my parents and many others in the same way. And you say the second time, listen, I warned you, do not do this. And then a third, maybe a fourth. And every time the offense is committed, there is an escalation of judgment, of discipline. Why? Because that offense is of such a heinous nature. And not just the thing itself, but really what? What is it that is compelling that person to do the same thing over and over again when they know they should not? A very, very wicked and rebellious heart. A stubborn and blind and foolish heart. And here we have a group of people. A whole nation... Time and time again, generation after generation, God has been patient. And not three times. We we go past three just in the book of Judges. Before we get to the book of Judges. Go read the Old Testament. And you will ask yourself, how does God just not give up on the whole thing and just obliterate everybody? Only because he is gracious. Now, he is patient. There comes a time when due to the stubbornness of men and their unwillingness to receive the mercy that comes from the mercy seat on God's terms, there is nothing left but wrath. And that leads me to my second point. When the way of mercy is closed, there comes a day when all hope for mercy is over. Now you hear that and go, well, I just don't like that. Right? That's the that is the righteous reflex of sinful men getting it wrong. Because you don't actually want God to be righteous, do you? When you accuse him of injustice. You want him to be partial to you and impartial to everyone else. <laughs> One professor said, everyone is, well, you know, this whole modern uh, modernity and postmodernity what is that and he said basically this is how you need to see it everyone is modern and postmodern at the same time modernity says there is right and wrong now it's not grounded upon scripture but there is right and wrong postmodernity says there is right or wrong but it is wholly dependent upon the person that every person is actually both 
You want everyone else to be held to a standard that you don't need to be held to. And every man has been like that from the beginning of time. And you see those complaints. You see, even when you go out and do apologetics and evangelism, that post-modernity modernity conflict within people. You want to hold God to a standard that you yourself do not hold to because you want to give yourself an out to not worship him. And so there comes a day when mercy passes. And it doesn't pass over in a way that is good, but when it passes over someone else and it misses you altogether. I want you to think of Egypt. And when you look at the angel of God sent upon Egypt in order to bring to the men of Egypt the death of their firstborn sons, we look at that and with our sort of Modern sensibilities say, well, that, that's pretty, pretty serious, pretty cruel. But what did God do nine times before that as warnings to everyone in Egypt to repent because Yahweh, I am that I am, Moses named him. Yahweh sent me. What Pharaoh should have done was say, people of Egypt, from this point on, We're a Christian nation. (laughs) We will worship Yahweh. We're going to get rid of all these other gods. We're going to destroy these idols. And as a people, we will turn our hearts to God and we will say, please do not bring judgment against us for you are our God and we are your people. This is what Rahab did. When Rahab heard, now I'm jumping to this evening's sermon, Of the might of God, she says, I don't want any of that. I want his mercy. But they did not listen. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And so when that tenth and final plague came, it wasn't, no, 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 Lord, please, no. It was too late. And God did this to his own people when they got to the border of the land. And he says, go in. And the ten spies said, it's not going to work. Don't have faith. Operate with fear, is what they were saying. That was the subtext. Then all the nation, they melted as with fear. Their hearts melted and not in a good way. And they said, we're not going to go in. Well, then God says, back to the wilderness you go until every single one of you dies. And they said, well, wait a second. Um, We didn't know that was going to happen. Can we go in now? And the Lord says, no, it's too late. There is a time when chances end. Now, here is an expression of the mercy of God. If you are here today and you have never entered, now, as the scripture says, is the day of salvation. The way is opened. And it does not require me to open it for you. The way has always been opened through Christ by faith. Abraham believed and it was counted to him righteousness. Isaac, Jacob, and countless others have all entered through one way. Noah and his family, one way. It is through the door. It is through the door. And so John takes this language given to him, and he is expressing it in a way that Jewish Christians, and even Christians like us, can understand. 
There comes a day when mercy ceases, when it is closed. And this is how he describes it. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now this language, in verse 8, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, is referenced two times previous to this in Exodus 40 and in 1 Kings chapter 8. The first time in Exodus 40, it's when God came down by a pillar of smoke once the tabernacle was finished and he came down to dwell there and the priest had to leave the tabernacle until he got settled. So they're always building bojangles in Gastonia. They're everywhere. And one stands for 10 years, and then they build a new one. And they just built one not far from here, 100 feet from the old one. And there's always on the glass, please excuse our mess, we're remodeling. Or, coming soon to you, another Bojangles. Or something along those lines. The reason you can't enter is because they're building something that you can one day enter. They're remodeling or they're getting ready to open up. And the grand opening is coming. That's Exodus 40. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, we see the same thing, but this time with the temple. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Another, please excuse, we're getting ready to open. God is coming down and his glory is filling and his glory is of such great power that no one can be there while he comes down. But once he's there, the doors are open so that the nation can draw near to him. And depending on the kinds of people they are and which tribe, they can go a certain distance. If you're a Gentile, you can go into the Gentile court, but no further. This was a kind of closing for something that was good. Both of these indicate a grand opening. And both of these indicate that this is now the place where you go if you wish to dwell in the presence of God. This is the place to be. And in Revelation chapter 15... We find something of that happening in addition to the wrath of God being poured out. Here the smoke of God fills the temple and it is shut, indicating this is no longer the place that wrath is about to be poured out, as we read explicitly, from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until what? The old temple was destroyed. And so if you go to the old location, there's nothing there. You have to go to the new location. This is why so many, and myself included, take much of Revelation to be the fulfillment of God's judgment against Israel in 70 A.D. That temple is no longer the place where you go to dwell in the presence of God or any other earthly place 
that is singular in its location. And so what Christ is doing in Revelation 15 is something that is twofold in nature. He is shutting off all of those who endeavor to enter into his presence by the continued earthly copy, that temple. And so all of those who are waiting for the dome of the rock to be destroyed and for the temple to be rebuilt right there in Jerusalem are not waiting for the right thing. They're waiting for something they should not be waiting for. Whether it is Jew or Gentile, that place, I don't care if you go visit it, but it is not any more holy than 203 Ryan Oakland Road. It may not be as beautiful and as rich in history, although I don't know the whole history of this place. And that was where Christ walked. But you and I even now dwell in the presence of God because Christ has opened the way. And so here in Revelation 15, Christ says, no entry. No one can come in until my wrath is poured out. And when Christ pours out his wrath upon Jerusalem, he is putting a stamp upon his covenant promises and he is making it very clear to our eyes even, this place is no longer necessary. How then do we enter? That's the question. We enter through Christ into the heavenly temple. And this theme is grounded upon God's divine character and purpose. Throughout the course of God's dealings with men, in the history that is captured in the scriptures of God's dealing with men, that is given to the church in every age, God does something of the same thing over and over and over again. There's a lot of repetition. And it's not only repetitive, but it is also progressive. So that the way that God created and how he placed men in the garden and upon earth is not unlike how God pursues sinful men and desires to dwell with them again. Because the intention of God is not merely to bring them into the Holy of Holies. The intention of God is to leave the Holy of Holies and to come and dwell with men in the camp. The problem is what? One of those places is holy and the other is not. One of those things is not like the other. So what has Christ come to do? He has come to make the camp like the Holy of Holies. He has come into the camp and he has given us his righteousness so that we, in him, might be holy. Christ dwells among us as a holy people. He ministers to us as a holy people. And he is expanding this glorious people throughout all of the earth because there is no one place. 
And so every time we see the smoke, what do we see? That the dwelling place of God is distinct from the prior one. Revelation chapter 15 verse 8 is not only indicating the closing off of one and the judgment upon those people (coughs) who still seek salvation from that place, but the opening up of the heavenly temple for every tribe, tongue, and nation. So when you invite people to worship Christ and to make peace with him, it is not necessary that they do it here, this address. They must do it here, in their very hearts. They must make peace with Christ. And they must fellowship with him, even with the saints, wherever they are gathered. We learned this not too long ago. I think it was just this summer when we had a plumbing incident downstairs. Now, I think it was fellowship meal. But what if that had happened during worship? Well, we would have just moved worship into the parking lot. Would that have mattered? No, you just take a lectern outside. You take your... This is the beauty of simple worship. You can do it with the lights out. You don't have to have power. You just got to have people. And what you really have to have is the one who has now opened the way to himself. And that is the age in which we live today. Right now, the way is opened. We are somewhere in the span of the first and second coming of Christ, in between those ages. At some point when Christ returns, the door shut. But right now, the doors are flung so wide in relationship to redemptive history. It is is incomparable, the width of those doors. And Christ says, all who come to me, I will never cast off. What we are called to do then, saints, knowing what is true of Christ and his work, of the heavenly temple, and what God wants to see happen. What does he want to see happen? The same thing that parents want, or couples want to have happen when they get married we bought this house now let's fill it with children let's make this place full (laughs) that's a good desire that's god's desire he always wants to have more children more and more of the glory of god displayed in his salvation and he tells us just how to get there Christ is the door. And though that door is particular, it opens up into this broad and glorious space that is filled with, as we sing, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. All the children of the world. Because that door is now open. Let's pray. Lord.